I'm going to ask you to pray with me once again. Father, we are in deep need of your help now as we seek to understand our times and know what your people should do. Lord, we pray that you would give us grace. We pray that you'd help us to think clearly. We pray that you'd make us those whose affections are ablaze for the Lord Jesus. Father, I pray that as we think carefully and closely about what the world is telling us and about what the scriptures tell us, Lord, I pray that you would make us those who, though we have not seen the Lord Jesus, we believe in him. And though we do not see him now, we rejoice in him with a joy unspeakable and full of glory. Lord, give us clear heads, sound thinking, and fervent hearts. Cause us to be those who love you with all that we are, those who love you with our minds, those who love you with our hearts, those who love you with all of our strength. And Lord, cause that to overflow into love for one another. We ask that you do this in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Genesis 13, I would invite you to open this morning to Genesis chapter 13. Genesis 13, the passage before us, gives us an opportunity to obey Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. I want to read that text to you. Paul writes to the Colossians in Colossians 2, verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Paul makes another statement along these same lines to the Ephesians when he says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So in Ephesians 5, 6, Paul speaks of empty words, and in Colossians 2, 8, he speaks of empty deceit. And uh, what I want to do is address this morning from Genesis 3, 3, 13, the way that a philosophical outlook has pervaded our culture and resulted in us feeling certain ways. And the way that our culture works, um, a few years ago, uh, I heard of, I'd never heard of this song before, I Got This Feeling, you know, you know the song I'm talking about? I'm not going to attempt to sing it. And I could never attempt the dance moves that Justin Timberlake does. But actually, it's, I like that song so much, it's my wife's ringtone. I got this feeling, you know. Uh, my kids love it when, when, the, when the phone starts ringing. They just, they, they flee from me. <laughs> they don't want to be anywhere near me when that ringtone starts going. But, but one day, we, um, we brought that song up on YouTube, and we brought up the version from the movie Trolls. And the troll who introduces the song, this is what she says. She says something like, I mean, this is a rough quote. I don't know if I've got it exactly right. But she says something like, I don't know it's true. I feel it. And that's the way our culture operates. We don't think about things. We feel things. And so in our culture, there are ways that people feel about things that I don't think have been carefully thought through. They haven't so what I'm telling you is not that this philosophical outlook has been consciously embraced by everybody, but this philosophical outlook informs the way that people respond emotionally to what's going on around us. And uh, before I go any further, I want to say that, that there are, as, as the elders have been discussing over the last um, week or two, there are dangers that face us from the left and from the right. And I just want to name some of these dangers. Uh, really, I just want to give one word, danger from each side. I think the danger from the left is a worldview danger. The danger that the left poses us and that this philosophical outlook poses to us 
is a danger that we would subtly embrace aspects of this worldview and not even realize, not even think about the way that the worldview that we've, that, that's just inundated us, washed over us, is, is directly contradictory to the biblical worldview. And so we would, we, because of the, the influence from the culture, we start feeling the way the culture feels without even consciously working our way through the thoughts. Okay, so that's the danger from the left. It's a worldview danger. From the right, here's, I think, here's, I think the, the danger that, that we're facing. Maybe, maybe this is the danger that most of us in this room, I know me, this is what I'm uh, uh, in danger of. It's an affectional danger. It's a, it's a, it's a, a heart danger. So if the, if the left, from, from the left, I think there's a head danger for us. From the right, I think there's a heart danger. There's a danger for us to feel a little bit of get-off-my-lawn-ism. I don't want to deal with you. I don't want to feel what you feel. This is not relevant to me. Leave me alone. I think that's the danger from the right. And we need to guard ourselves from both dangers. But I'll be very honest with you. This sermon is going to, be, it's going to deal with the head stuff. And here's, here's why I think that's important. Once we beat back the worldview, we have to identify the empty deceit, the, the vain words, the deceitful philosophy. I'm going to try to trace that out, and we're going to try to beat that off. And then we want to love the truth with everything that we are. We want to love the truth. We want to love God with everything that we are, and we want to love people. Okay, so, so we want to fight off both dan- dangers from both sides here. So um, I want to introduce the way that I'd like for us to come at Genesis 13 in this way. A few years ago, um, a guy named Lynn manuel Miranda came up with this musical called Hamilton. And he did something subversive in the way that he, he cast the, the musical, which was about one of the founding fathers of this country, Alexander Hamilton. And, and before I go any further, let me just say that for a lot of people in our culture, if they think about Alexander Hamilton, you know, the guy who's on the $10 bill, their thoughts are going to go establishment. I mean, here's this guy on the $10 bill. He's one of the founding fathers. He was George Washington's right-hand man. Establishment. Well, what Lin-Manuel Miranda did to subvert all that was he cast himself, and I believe he's of Puerto Rican descent, so he's one of the brown people, he cast himself in the musical as Alexander Hamilton. And then he cast uh, George Washington, a black man as George Washington, and another black man as Thomas Jefferson, and another black man as uh, the guy that shot Hamilton, his name leaves me at the... Aaron Burr, that's right. So the only white male in the cast was the King of England. And the point that he's making is, at the founding of this country... Those guys were not the establishment. And, and it's almost as, uh, there were people who responded to this, this musical, saying things like, for the first time in my life, I felt patriotic. Why are they saying that? They're saying that because there's a feeling in our culture that says, if you're white and you're male and you're powerful and influential, you're part of the problem. Now, where does that come from? Now, Why do I talk about that? I talk about that because I want you to look with me at Genesis 13, and let's read verses 2 and 5. Actually, we'll just read verse 2. Look at Genesis 13, verse 2. Now, Abram was very rich. You believe the Bible says that? The Bible says that. Did you notice that? Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And if there's anybody in the Bible whose establishment, it's Abram, right? I mean, this is the guy that... Everybody else from this point forward in the Bible, they're the children of Abraham. So our culture, I think if we, if, we, if we can step away from the fact that Abram's a Middle Eastern male, right? Our culture, I think, if we apply the feelings, the dispositions of our culture toward Abram, we start thinking, he's an oppressor. He, he, he allowed his wife to be sold into slavery in Genesis 12. And where did all that wealth come from? Well, from the way that he abused his wife by selling her into slavery, not really selling her into slavery, but using her to protect himself, and then he, he got rich off that. And, 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 and our culture, I think, 
would immediately dispose us not to like Abram if we looked at him with the lens that is so often applied in our culture. Where is this coming from? I submit to you that this comes from, ultimately, if we, if we trace it all the way back into its philosophical roots, it comes from Marxism. The Marxists, the Marxist, Marxist, Karl Marx decided that capitalism was the devil, and he wanted to overthrow capitalism. And, and then he began to prophesy of what would happen. He prophesied that eventually the proletariat, the working class, would rise up and overthrow what he called the bourgeoisie. And the bourgeoisie, they were people who, I mean, contrary to Marx's assumptions, they were people who had worked hard. They were people who had stable families. They were often people of faith, believing Christian people. And, and Marx saw all of that as needing to be overthrown. The family needed to go. The faith needed to go. And their ownership of private property needed to go. Now, in the midst of all this, there were, there were cases where some of these people were abusive to their workers. You might even say there was a lot of abuse, a lot of uh, bad working conditions. But, but Marx's prescription, I don't think, is the answer ultimately to this. Well, as the years go by, the, um, the Marxists who are committed to this approach to life, they begin to realize that there's something standing in their way that's keeping the revolution that they're hoping for from happening. And eventually what they land on is it's Christianity and the culture that it has produced throughout the Western world. And so, so there's, a, there was a, there's a really good article on this in the journal Thamelios, which you can Google and find if you'd like. It's called Cultural Marxism. And then there's a subtitle. It's by this guy, Robert S. Smith. And, and this is what he says. He says that the Marxists realized, quote, unless and until Western culture is de-Christianized, Western society will never be decapitalized. And then they began, to, they began to realize that what was keeping Western culture from being de-Christianized were relationships of family, churches, uh, Christian schools, all these non-political institutions. And then what the Marxists began to do is realize that, that they needed to subvert ideologically all of that. And, and this fellow named uh, Gramsci, Antonio Gramsci, this is, this is what this guy Robert Smith says about this guy Gramsci. He says, Gramsci means to replace Western culture by subverting it by doing what it takes to compel it to redefine itself rather than picking fights with it. So what he's arguing, what he's trying to accomplish is we want the culture to redefine itself. We want the culture to go to war against itself. And now, now we live in a time when um, the feed that you look at, look at on ESPN, the blogs that you read, the Facebook posts, the tweets, the news, the, mood, the movies, everything is inundated with all of these cultural assumptions that create a sense of what's right and what's wrong. And we all feel what it is to be politically correct or politically incorrect. And that's all growing out of what the Marxists were trying to accomplish and what, what the cultural Marxists, particularly this guy Antonio Gramsci and others who followed him, set out to achieve. And so what I want to draw your attention to is the, is the way we would feel about Abram if we look at him this way. If we look at Abram this way, we're going to think he's a male, he's established, he's rich, he's wicked, He's guilty. He's part of the problem. So look with me again at, uh, uh, at Genesis chapter 13. Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev, this is verse 3, as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai. And you may remember that in that place, back in Genesis 12 verse 7, he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. And then look at verse 4, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. Okay, so Moses wants you to remember what Abram did in Genesis 12, 7. And there, 
Genesis 13, 4, Abram called upon the name of the Lord. The Bible is not looking at Abram the way that our culture would look at Abram. The Bible is saying, yes, Abram's wealthy, but Abram's a worshiper. And where does the wealth come from? Well, Genesis 12, verse 2, I will bless you. That's where the wealth comes from. The Bible teaches, the Bible, the Bible does not teach the wealthy people are wealthy because they are oppressors. The Bible teaches the Lord makes rich and the Lord makes poor. And so Abram got rich because God blessed him. That's what the Bible teaches. And the Bible would not have us look at wealthy people and say, must be a wicked oppressor. The Bible would have us look at wealthy people and say, I hope they came by that honestly. It looks like God has blessed them. But we, we, don't, we, we reserve judgment. The Lord is our judge. And then, so it's, it's very interesting here how we read in verse 2 that Abram was rich. And then we get two statements in verses 3 and 4 about uh, places, land places. And then verse 5 tells us that Lot is rich. So it's like the wealth is bracketing this, and then you got land in the middle. So verse 5, and Lot who went with Abram also had flocks and herds and tents. Now, let me, let me flesh out a little bit more why I'm belaboring Abram's wealth. We, you start from Marxism, and Marxism morphs into something called critical theory. And critical theory is defined by Robert Smith, this is a quote, as biting social critique aimed at exposing and dismantling the corrupt foundations and oppressive nature of capitalist society. Let me read that again. Critical theory is biting social critique aimed at exposing and dismantling the corrupt foundations and oppressive nature of capitalist society. So what Marxism does is it divides everybody into either oppressors or oppressed. So if you're wealthy, by definition, you're an oppressor. If you're poor, by definition, you're oppressed because that's the only way that they can think about people. Marxists, they're kind of like Voldemort. They don't understand love. They only understand power. Power is everything for these people. Power is the only thing that matters. So in Genesis, in Genesis 13, verses 2 through 5, we have this wealthy worshiper, and let's just observe here that he's not written off. He's not dismissed after Genesis 12. Right? So he's a male, and, and he sinned against Sarah. We acknowledge that. I think he probably repented of that sin. But that sin does not permanently disqualify him in, in, in the mind of God or in the mind of the biblical author Moses. So he's not written off after 12, 11, and 12. And, and the Bible is not presenting Abram as a patriarchal abuser. That is not the way that, that the Bible is treating Abram. The Bible is not looking at him as an oppressor. That is not the way the Bible is looking at him. Now, let me try to bring this a little bit closer to home. Because, again, what the Marxists expected was for the proletariat to rise up and overthrow the bourgeoisie. Well, it didn't happen. And the reason, one of the reasons it didn't happen was because the working class... They benefited from capitalism too, and their lives got better. All of a sudden, they've got things like air conditioning and color television and the, the ability to go places and have vacations, and so their lives are getting better from capitalism too, and so they're not angry at the system. They're not trying to overthrow the system. And so the Marxists, they have to go back to the drawing board, and they have to look for some groups that are discontented. And what they find were intellectuals who are often discontented, and students and minority groups. And so this is where, this is the connection between Marxism and critical theory and critical race theory. Critical race theory takes the categories of Marxism and applies them to the relationships between ma the majority group, which in this country is the white people, and the minority groups, which in this country are the black and the brown people. And now the categories of Marxism become oppressor, oppressed. 
And so now, as with Marxism, where you're guilty if you're wealthy, with critical race theory, you're guilty if you're white. You're guilty if you're white, and um, you're guilty if you're male, because there's another aspect of this, which is intersectionality. And, and with intersectionality, um, what, what they look at are the ways that your, your ways of being oppressed intersect with one another. So if you are a, a, a white, educated male, you're going to have a lot more power to oppress than if you are a black female who's poor and then they throw in your sexual identity. So if you're lesbian, you're going to be oppressed by the wider culture. And all of that, for them, needs to be overthrown. So look with me now at, at the problem that we encounter in Genesis 13. So again, Abram is not being looked at in the Bible the way that our culture would look at him, because in our culture, uh, economics and gender and race all to go together to form oppressors. And what I want to suggest to you is that the Bible is not looking at people that way. And I want to further suggest that the world doesn't actually work that way. That being a male doesn't make Abram an oppressor. That being part of the established doesn't make Abram an oppressor. That's not the way the world works. And I want to encourage you to look at your own life and consider whether that's the way it's worked in your life. And I think you'll find that as, as with the Bible, so with your life. The world doesn't work the way the Marxists and the critical race theorists say that it works. So we got a problem here in Genesis 13, verses 6 through 9. Look at verse 6. Abram and Lot are so wealthy, verse 6, that the land could not support both of them. They've got so much stuff. they got so many flocks, so many herds, that there's not enough pasturage for everything. So the problem is not Abram has power. The problem is the land is not sufficient for both Abram and Lot. The land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And then look at verse 7. There was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. And again, this is a barrier to the promise. The promise is, I'm going to give you that land. Well, the Canaanites and the Perizzites are there. And now there's this strife between Abram and Lot's livestock. Let's pause. What does our culture expect? Well, if we look at this from the lens of our culture, we're expecting Abram to start playing the oppressor. We're going to think Abram's about to execute a power play on Lot because Abram is clearly the one with the upper hand, so that's what we expect him to do. Look at verse 8. Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Literally, we're brothers. We're brothers. Let's not fight. Verse 9, is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. This is no power play, is it? Abram acts out of love. Abram says, Lot, survey the land. And you take the part that you like best. It's like Abram is saying, Lot, I'm going to give you first dibs on the best land. Have at it. And, and let's spread out so that everybody's flocks and herds can be dealt with. No power play, no oppression. The Bible does not look at, the way, at things the way that our cultural narrative looks at things. And I submit to you again, your life does not work that way. I suspect that... If you go back through your life, you might find some bad actors. You go back through your history, you might find some people that were mean, some people that were nasty, some people that took advantage. Yes, people are sinners. And if we survey our own hearts and our lives from a biblical perspective, I think we'll find that actually the sins are a lot more vicious than what Marxism would say they are. We're worse than Marxism says we are. But we'll also find that the world doesn't work the way that the Marxists say that the world works. And the world doesn't work the way that the critical race theorists say that the world 
works. So what I'm telling you is the philosophy, the ideology is false. It breaks down on reality. Well, how has Marxism responded to this? They've responded by saying, this is, this is what one of these, uh, this, this uh, literary theorist that I actually read as, a, as an English uh, major at the University of Arkansas, we read this critical theory, and we read this guy named Georg Lukash. I remember the name, I remember reading him, and, and this is what Lukash says. He, he quotes this philosopher who says, if theory conflicts with the facts, so much the worse for the facts. Do, do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, if you present me with evidence that overturns my theory, I'm not interested in your evidence. That's what he's saying. And this is the way that, that Marxism and critical theory and critical race theory respond to truth. They say, well, there's my truth and there's your truth. And, and, and what that results in is ultimately there is no truth. So for Marxists, to be wealthy is to be guilty. For critical race theory, to be white is to be guilty. For intersectionality, to be male is to be guilty, to be an oppressor. That's not how the Bible defines sin. And let, let me observe for you that the upshot of this is that these theories, the, our, our culture's approaches to the world, they make you guilty for sins that you didn't commit. But then things that the Bible says are sinful, they say, oh, well, you don't have to worry about those things. Sexual promiscuity, um, disregard of truth, love for neighbor. Well, as long as your neighbor is one of these people that everybody's happy to heap scorn upon or denounce, you don't have to love them. That's not the way the Bible comes at, at the world. And also, with these, with these theories, um, you're guilty if you're white, male, and privileged. That's another big word, privilege. If you have privilege, you're guilty. And there's, there's only one way for you to be, be forgiven, but I'm just going to insert in parentheses here, you really won't be forgiven. You can't be because you're still white. You can't be forgiven. You're guilty. But the only way for you to be forgiven is for you to become an ally. And to be an ally means you've joined the cause and you're ready to affirm without evaluation, without contemplation, without analysis, without discussion, whatever the oppressed group says. That's the only way to be forgiven. What this does is it redefines sin it relativizes truth, it imputes guilt, and it removes your moral responsibility and your moral agency. That's what it does. Really, this is, a, this is an alternative religion. It's an alternative religion that even, even people in our society who aren't consciously embracing all the tenets of this philosophy, they're operating on the values of this, this false gospel. Um, we see uh, what happens with Abram and Lot here in verses 6 through 9, and then we see what Lot does, the choice that Lot makes in verses 10 through 13. Look at verse 10. Lot lifted up his eyes, and I just want to no, drop your eyes down to verse 14. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes. You see that repetition of that phrase, lift up your eyes. That's marking a kind of division for you between uh, verses 9 through 13 and then verses 14 through 18. So uh, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord. He's talking about the garden of Eden. So you see how Moses is reminding you of what, what, what you saw in Genesis 2. And then he says, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. Now, we haven't read in the Bible about Egypt yet, but Moses is going to tell us about how the people went down to Egypt. So Moses is assuming information that you haven't encountered yet. And he, I submit to you he does this all through the book of Genesis. Moses expects his audience to read and reread and and revisit and meditate upon what he's telling them. And you see that even in, in the very next phrase. Look at, look at the next phrase in parentheses there. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. 
So Moses is assuming that you're aware of Genesis 19. And he's also allowing what happened in Genesis 19 now to color this narrative of the place that Lot chose. So there in verse verse 11, Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Now, so so if we go back to our map here, and that little box with the plexiglass on it is uh, the Dead Sea, and that hole in the rectangular wooden box is the Sea of Galilee, and between them is the Jordan River. Lot chooses this area over by the Dead Sea, and Abram Abram goes into the land of Canaan, which God has promised to him. And then the balcony there is the Mediterranean. So Abram moves to the west into the land of Canaan, and Lot moves east toward Sodom. Did you you see that there in verse 11? Lot journeyed east. And, you know, at this point in Genesis, nobody who goes east is going in a good direction, right? Abram, uh, Adam, Adam and Eve... They had to go east when they came out of Eden. And then Cain, after he murdered Abel and he was made a restless wanderer, he moved east. And then after uh, the, the Tower of Babel, God dispersed those people. But they were moving east when they, when they found that plain in Shinar. So, so Moses is subtly indicating Lot is not making a good choice. And then if we think about what's going on here, why is it that Lot is not making a good choice? Well, look at, look at verse 12. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Verse 13, now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So let's think about this now. What does Lot know? Lot knows God has promised to bless Abram. So if Lot wants to be in on God's blessing. When Abram says, we need to separate, we need to spread out so that the land can bear us up. If I'm Lot, I I think I want to say, and I want to be in on the blessing of God on Abram, I think I want to say something like this, where are you going? Where are you going to be? And God's promised you the land of Canaan, which part of the land of Canaan can I have so that I'll be in the land that God has promised to you so that even though we have to spread out over this land, You're my influence, not the Sodomites. Do you see what I'm saying? Lot, what Lot does is Lot says, well, that looks prosperous. And what's going on in Sodom looks enticing. And so Lot, apparently, I think Moses wants us to understand, given the way that he's referenced the overthrow of Sodom there in verse 11, it's like he's saying, hey, think about what's going to happen in the future to this town. I think Moses wants us to look at the choice that Lot makes and say, you're not going in a good direction, Lot. You need to stay with Abram. Now, let me, let me bring this back again. You see how the Bible's thinking about sin, right? The Bible is thinking about sin in terms of what is it that you're drawn to? What is it that you're committed to? And for the Bible, I think... I think that the Bible is saying Lot should have been committed to Abram and the promise made to Abram and the land that God promised to Abram. And it seems that instead what attracted Lot were these sinners, these great sinners in verse 13, who are wicked and their actions in verse 13 are against the Lord. And Lot, it's like a magnet. He's just getting closer and closer to them. So he's here in verse 12, he's moving his tent as far as Sodom, but over in Genesis 19, he's living in the city. So he's not being repelled by evil. He seems to be drawn to it. So the Bible views people as individuals, not as groups, right? The Bible is not practicing identity politics, Abraham's a member of the privileged class. He's a member of the white crowd or whatever you want to say. That No, the Bible is saying Abraham's an individual who's making choices and he's responsible for his choices. Same with Lot. The Bible is not saying, well, Lot's one of the good guys because he's related to Abram. No, Lot's a sinner. He's doing stupid things. He shouldn't be drawn to Sodom. So our culture, though, our culture doesn't view, or at least this philosophy is not viewing people as individuals, but according to their group 
identity. So if you hear people refer to identity politics, this is what they're objecting to. The way that you're not looking at how particular people uh, relate to others, you're just looking at the color of their skin. And if they got the wrong skin color, they're guilty, however they treat other people. Um, and this brings me to a concept that's in dispute in our culture. It's in dispute, and it's been rejected by a lot of people, but I want to commend it to you. I, I want to I suggest to you that the... Now, you know, I'm open, to, I'm open to, to discussion and debate about this, and if I'm wrong on this, come talk to me. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to acknowledge that I, I could strike out. I could make an error, all right? But what I want to do is I want to say... Here's the worldview that's operative in the culture. Here's the Bible's worldview. And there are virtues that go with the culture's worldview. And there are virtues that go with the Bible's worldview. So I want to raise for your consideration this concept of color blindness. And I want to suggest to you that it fits with the biblical worldview. To say, with Dr. Martin Luther King, I'm not judging people on the basis of, their color of, this, on the, basis of the color of their skin, but the content of their character. And so, so, on the one hand, I think it's right to say, it doesn't matter to me where somebody was born, what country, what color their skin is, how much money they have. I want to I get to know that person, and those, these external manifestations are, are not so relevant. Now, why would somebody object to that? Well, there's a, there's a, there's a worldview component of rejecting to that. Because Marxism and critical race theory, they need minority identity to be objecting to the majoritarian culture, all right? But let me, let me come swing back around to that affectional thing for us. This is what we don't want to mean when we say that we're colorblind. We don't want to mean your history, I don't care about that. We don't want to mean, I don't think that your personal experiences are relevant to how I should treat you or how I should respond to you. In other words, we don't want to be callous and hard-hearted and unloving, but we also don't want to let the culture tell us that if we say to someone, look, there's truth, there's objective reality, and there are valid ways of establishing the truth of an argument, we don't want to say, let somebody tell us that if you insist upon those things, you're actually being unloving because you're not allowing their personal experience to overturn evidence, objective reality, and the, the way that things really are. I, I hope I'm, I'm making sense here. I'm trying, I'm trying to say we want to come at things the way the Bible comes at things. And the Bible comes at people as individuals, not according to their group identity. And Lot's problem, according to the Bible... Is not that he's a wealthy male oppressor. His problem is that worldly prosperity and luxury and pleasure and the enticements of sin and the opportunity for him to indulge himself in those sins seem to have distracted him from God's program and God's promises. I think that's what Moses would say is Lot's problem here in Genesis 13. So, so we got really two gospels here, don't we? In the one gospel, you've got the familiar narrative of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And I'm just going to assume, well, let me just briefly say, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, what we believe about these things is that God created the world, God created people in his image, and people chose to sin. Individual human beings chose to rebel against God, and as a result, they bring down God's wrath upon them. And that wrath is so serious, and God is so serious about his justice, that he sent his own son, Jesus, to die on the cross to pay the penalty for, for sin, to uphold God's justice, and to absorb the full fury of God's indignation against human sin. And that makes it so that he can make a new heavens and new earth and show mercy even to people who are sinners. Now, here's the alternative. The alternative... Uh, narrative, the, the, it's really kind of a, like a, like a pseudo-Christianity that's on offer. You don't, have Christ, you don't have creation, what you have is evolution. And, and Marxism is strictly materialistic. And you don't have a fall, you have oppression. You, the original sin is no longer Adam's transgression against the Lord's command. The original sin is 
Whatever, whatever applies in the case, whether it's wealth or the means of production or whiteness or privilege or maleness, what, however that may apply. And then you don't have redemption. What you have is indoctrination. And, you know, I quoted that philosopher a minute ago, if the theory is in conflict with the facts, well, so much the worse for the facts. This is, this is really, this is their attitude. I mean, they, they, they will say openly, this is Lukash again, Quote, communist ethics makes it the highest duty to accept the necessity, necessity to act wickedly. You act wickedly in order to enact communist ethics. And then they'll also say that there are certain ideas that cannot be tolerated. There are, there are uh, for instance, Christian morality, family, hierarchy, loyalty, tradition, the rule of the law, sexual restraint, the right for everyone to vote, property rights, patriotism, capitalism, technology, all that is not to be tolerated because it doesn't advance the cause. So at the end of the day, what you have is you're just replacing one in-group with a different in-group. If all there is is power, You're just taking power away from those who have it now, and you're trying to redistribute it, giving the power to somebody else. But you're really not solving the problems. So for redemption, all you can have is indoctrination because you have no absolute truth, and you have intolerance, and you have experience-based truth. And then for restoration, you don't have restoration, you have the revolution, which is supposed to bring about a utopia. And this has been tried. It was tried across the 20th century, and and Marxism and communism resulted in an estimated 100 million deaths between between the, the number of people that died in China and Russia and Cambodia and Vietnam and everywhere else that communism has been tried. This guy, Robert Smith, he says, he says communism with a body count of around 100 million He says, we can say that the Marxist experiment has led to more deaths than any other ideology the world has ever known. And you know what? It's offshoots, Marxism's offshoots, like critical theory and critical race theory. It's going to lead to more division and more disharmony than the world has ever known. Critical race theory is not, if you use that as an analytical tool, you know what you're going to get? You're going to get, well, I'm analyzing those people as oppressors. And I'm analyzing the way that their whiteness or their privilege or their maleness has been used against me. That is never going to produce love for the brethren, forbearance, a willingness to to work together. It's never going to bring about Christian unity. Let's look at verses 14 through 18 where we see God's promise to Abraham. Look at verse 14. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look to the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. So he says, look at the land, the land of Canaan. Verse 15, for all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your seed, your offspring forever. And then he starts again with offspring, verse 16. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. And then he moves back to land in verse 17. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. And then he moves back to descriptions of the land in verse 18. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. So the passage, you know, it's like description, place names in the land, verse 14, place names in the land in verse 18. And then I'm going to give you the land in verse 15, and I'm going to give you the land in verse 17. And then uh, in between, at the end of 15 and the the beginning of 16, you've got all these statements about seeds. So there's a chiastic structure here to this passage. And, And look at what God is telling Abram to hope in. Abram, I'm going to accomplish redemption. I'm going to fulfill my promise. I'm going to give you the land. And look at how Abram responds. I'm going to worship you, Lord. So so upshot of this sermon, 
The Bible does not promise an earthly utopia. I mean, you, you look at Abram's life. He doesn't achieve an earthly utopia. And the author of Hebrews says they're hoping for the promises. They're receiving initial installments in the promises, but the promises weren't fulfilled. That awaits Revelation 21, new heavens and new earth. So what we want to do is we want to know our worldview, and we want to know the virtues and the righteous behaviors that, that go along with our worldview so that when something that the Bible says, this is what righteousness is, and the world says, no, it's not righteous. If you think that, you're actually wicked. We want to be able to say, well, let me analyze your worldview. Let me figure it out figure out why it is that you would say that this thing that the Bible commands me to do, which would be righteous, is actually wicked. And then we want to have the, the, the intellectual wherewithal to say, your worldview premise is wrong. The, the world actually doesn't work the way that you say the world works. It doesn't work that way at all. And my experience has not been the way that your worldview would dictate. That's not, that's not, and the Bible doesn't show the world to work that way. So we want to know our worldview, and we want to respond the way that Abram responds. We want to be those, I mean, we don't go around physically building altars, do we? But we want to, those, we want to be those who call upon the name of the Lord. That's why we gathered here this morning at 10 a.m. We believe he can actually make things better. We want to be those who are ready, like 1 Peter 1.8 says, to, though we have not seen him, we love him. We love Jesus. And though we do not see him now, we rejoice in him with a joy unspeakable and full of glory. We want to give thanks for what God has promised in Christ and for what God has done in Christ. And we do want for laws in our society to be just. And if there are wicked laws, let's... let's Fix our eyes upon them, and let's use the means appointed to us to try to get those wicked laws changed. I mean, I think that's what evangelical churches have been doing for a long time now, have always done in every society that they've ever lived in. So we want just laws, and we want those laws justly applied without partiality. But we don't want Christian truth and Christian virtue supplanted by mob outrage. We don't want that. And, and Carl Truman wrote an essay where he was, again, talking about these same, same things about uh, cultural Marxism. This one's on the Gospel Coalition's website. Um, Truman says that, talking about the way that, that Marx has really won the culture. This is a quote from Carl Truman, quote, this is why there is so much pressure for churches to speak to whatever is the political issue of the day. We live in Marx's world, a world where the cultural imagination is gripped by the idea that everything is political. Silence in today's climate on any issue by anybody in any institution is unacceptable. For to take no political stand on anything in our world is, in fact, to take a political stand, a stand for the status quo. And see, for Marxism, the status quo includes Christian morality, Christian truth, Christian virtue, and they want all that overthrown. And then Truman goes on to say this, resorting to arguments about the church being otherworldly and focused on heaven sound in the modern ear like a vote of support for the perceived injustices, sexual, economic, and psychological, of the world as it currently exists. Well, Look, Genesis 13, 14 through 18, that's eschatological. That's focused on the new heavens and new earth. God is saying, Abram, this is what I want you to know. I'm going to give you this land. And this land is a foretaste of the new heavens and new earth. This is what you hope in. So we want to know our worldview. Now, I want to say, maybe I shouldn't do this, but I'm going to say something provocative. We don't want to, we don't want to embrace or be part of a move that will only result in more lynchings just of different victims. In other words, we don't want the oppressors lynched any more than we want the oppressed lynched. We don't want anybody lynched in our culture. And, and we need to be people who are ready to say, we know what the gospel is. 
We know what the true gospel is. And the gospel of the church is not the gospel of critical race theory or of critical theory or of Marxism. Those are false gospels. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. And Lord, we know that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. And so, Lord, I earnestly beseech you, I plead with you by your Spirit to come and stir up our hearts. Make us people who have strong affections for the Lord Jesus. Make us people who feel passionately about the cause of Christ in the world. Make us people who have tasted and seen that you are good. And then, Lord, cause that strength of affection to make us careful thinkers, people who are useful in our generation because we think carefully about the claims that are being made and the, the ways that our contemporaries are feeling about things. So, Lord, guard us from the dangers from the left and the right. Guard us from a hard-hearted meanness and guard us from an, an, an inadvertent acceptance of a foreign worldview. Lord, make us people of the gospel. Cause us to love you and love one another. Make us sensitive where we need to be sensitive, humble where we need to be humble, strong where we need to be strong, resistant where we need to be resistant. Make us people of the truth. Make us those of whom it's evident that we've been with Jesus. Lord, cause us to be those who drink of the living water, who eat the bread of life, who have known what it is to be forgiven and are so grateful to you for it and so eager for other people to experience your mercy. Lord, we love you. We commit all these requests to you in Christ's name. Amen.